Good morning. Uh, my name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC. It's great to be with you this morning. Uh, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 15. And if you uh, didn't bring a Bible with you, there's a blue Bible on the ground near you. Uh, you can find John 15 on page 901. Or uh, I'm sure many, most of you have digital devices that allow you to find that as well. I'm going to read John 15, starting in verse 1. Let me invite you to stand with me if you are uh, willing and able as we give our attention to God's Word. Jesus says these words, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him... He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is God's word. It's given because he loves you. It's completely true. So would you pray with me this morning? God, would you... Meet with us. God, as we uh, pause this morning for these next few moments to devote our attention to your word, God, would we uh, know you, our Father who loves us? Would we have minds to imagine all that Jesus uh, wants to do in us? That we might uh, experience the power of your Spirit transforming us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. I wonder if you remember the movie Goodwill Hunting. It came out in uh, 1997. It's the story of Will Hunting, played by Matt Damon. I looked it up this week and was shocked to be reminded of how young Matt Damon looked in this movie. Uh, but Matt Damon is this, uh, he, he's a genius. Um, but he works as a janitor at MIT, and he's never been outside of the Boston area. And through a strange kind of series of events, he solves this math problem on the board at MIT that nobody's been able to solve, and is kind of discovered, it's discovered this, this janitor is, is, has a genius level IQ. And then uh, he gets in trouble with the law, and, um, and uh, a professor advocates for him. Uh, to get a lenient sentence if he agrees to go and see uh, this therapist. 
And he has this kind of cocky, sarcastic attitude, and he doesn't have any time for his therapist. And, uh, and he, uh, he spends much of his therapy sessions berating his therapist. And then one day there's this great scene where they kind of run into each other on this park bench. And uh, his therapist, who's played by uh, Robin Williams, kind of pulls up to him on this park bench. And after a typically kind of sarcastic beginning of the conversation, his therapist looks at Will and he says, you know, Will, if I asked you about art, says this with this like New England, uh, Boston accent, art. If I asked you about art, he'd probably give me the skinny on every art book ever written. Michelangelo, you know a lot about him. Life's work, political aspirations, him and the Pope, sexual orientation, the whole thing, right? But I bet you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You've never actually stood there and looked up at that beautiful ceiling and seen that. And then he continues, he says, and if I asked you about love, you'd probably quote me a sonnet, but you've never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable. Known someone that could level you with her eyes. Feeling like God put an angel on earth just for you. And he continues giving these examples of war and, uh, and relationships and love and friendship. And he says, you're a genius, Will. No one denies that. But you don't really know what you're talking about. You know about all of these things, but you don't really know because you haven't actually experienced. You know, it's a, it's a beautiful scene, but I wonder if for many of us, the same could be said of our experience of Christianity. I wonder if the same thing could be said of us when it comes to our knowledge of, of, of the God of the universe and of his word to us, the Bible. You know, when we think about the reputation of Christians and Christianity in our culture, it seems like we're seeing that there is kind of this increased sense of pushback and hostility. And I wonder if the reason for that is in large part that those of us who call ourselves Christians know a great deal of true things about the God of the Bible and yet have very little experience of him. Uh, we know that God is loving because we hear it said all the time. And we believe that it's true, but we have very little experience of the love of God. We know that God is the one who provides, and yet we're working so hard that we rarely take the time to slow down and acknowledge him as the one who provides our every need. Since Easter, we've been looking at the way that Jesus describes uh, himself. And uh, there are seven or eight places in the Gospel of John where he makes these great I am statements. And the question that I want to ask you as we kind of are moving towards the end of this series is, is this one that's, that's, that's been up on the screens this, this whole series. Really the words of Jesus to uh, the Apostle Peter. Who do you say I am? Because Jesus is telling us who he is, but... The question for us then remains, who, who do you say that I am? Do you know me? We've heard the words of Jesus. We know about him, but do you experience his grace firsthand? Sinclair Ferguson is a, uh, uh, a pastor, a, a professor. He's, uh, he's probably one of the, you know, the greatest living theologians of our time, and he's got this great Scottish accent, so everything that he says just sounds right. <laughs> And true, but um, I have a friend who uh, had a had a conversation with Sinclair Ferguson a couple of years ago, 
And uh, Sinclair Ferguson is this, he's a brilliant man. He's written uh, all incredible, like uh, just in so many books he's written, uh, like 20, 30 books. And uh, this is just an anecdote. It gives you a sense of who, what a brain this guy is. He, uh, I think late 90s, he was writing a book and his, uh, his computer died. And this was before the time when things just backed up on their own. And, and uh, he lost the whole book. And so he just got a new computer and just wrote it all out again from memory. Uh, incredibly just intellectually oriented man, but he's also the pastor or was the pastor of a church in South Carolina. And uh, my friend was talking to him and Sinclair Ferguson told him that he was preaching a series on the emotional life of Jesus. And he thought that's a really strange thing for this kind of intellectual giant to be interested in the, the emotional life of Jesus. And, um, and Sinclair Ferguson told my friend, he said, I've come to realize that for most people in the church, they have a lot of information about the gospel, but they don't really understand it on a practical level. You know, we've all had that experience. A friend has a, has a chance encounter with a celebrity, and we say, what were they really like? Or um, somebody comes back from vacation, goes to Rome or Paris or something, and you see the pictures, and, and you, you ask, but what was it really like? You know, I wonder if... if um, Later this week, if somebody were to ask you, you're a Christian, right? You'd say, yes, yes, I'm a Christian. And um, if they were to say to you, what is Jesus really like? I wonder what you would say. What is he really like? Do you know him? I know what it's like to live a kind of secondhand spirituality where we have lots of good information about God, very true information about the Bible and yet not experience the love of God in a real, practical, daily way. Uh, I've lived much of my life that way, where you kind of hear people talk about God, and it's all true, and you believe true things about God, and yet not having that firsthand experience uh, with Him in our day-to-day -day lives, living on kind of a second-hand spirituality. But I also know what it's like to know Jesus to know him firsthand. And I want you to know him. I want you to experience him. I want worship to not be this place that we come to hear from somebody who talks about God, but to be this place where people who have been experiencing his grace day in and day out gather to worship together, to celebrate what he's doing in our lives. And I believe that this passage shows us the way beyond secondhand spirituality to a life lived in the presence of God. And so I want to just highlight for us this morning three truths from this passage where Jesus makes this statement. He says, I am the vine. Three truths in this passage. And the first truth is this. This is really the premise of this passage. The first truth that I want you to see is this. Jesus wants you to produce fruit. Jesus wants your life to be fruitful. And I think we have to start with this because I don't know about you, but for me so often my experience of living as a Christian, and let me just pause by saying I'm not in any way expecting that every person here is a Christian, but um, I feel like this is maybe a sermon that I'm addressing particularly to those that are Christians and hope that if you don't consider yourself a Christian that you would... Uh, be willing to listen in with us this morning. I feel like often my experience 
of the Christian life feels a little bit like this, where I would say, yes, I believe in God and I want to follow him with all of my life, or at least most of my life. But, but part of me feels like there's this little part over here that I just got to hold on to, where I can kind of eke out this like experience of joy because it feels like if God really knew all of the things that I wanted for my life, that he would take them away from me, or at least some of them. I mean, maybe, maybe that's just me, but I don't think so. Listen again to verse 11. Jesus said, I have said these things to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. God wants you, Jesus wants you to produce fruit. He wants you to live a flourishing, fruitful life. Uh, many years ago, when um, I was a college pastor, uh, I was at this kind of, you know, we all have these ups and downs in our lives, and I was kind of in one of these places where life was frustrating and everything felt hard, and a couple of the students in my ministry had just kind of collaborated together to make a really a uh, series of really terrible life choices, and uh, and, I, and I was just kind of crushed and hurting for them, and, and and frustrating, and probably in my insecurity, feeling like I must be really bad at my job because if I had any influence in their lives, they would not be doing what they're doing, and I was just really frustrated and and um, and, uh, and increasingly anxious, and a good friend of mine. He, uh, we were talking about this, and he came to me, and he said, really just two simple sentences. He said, you have to believe that God is for you. You have to believe that God is for you. Um, and then he said this, and he is more committed to the fruitfulness of your work than you will ever be. And that just kind of hit me like this burst of fresh air. God God wants my ministry. God wants your life, your work to flourish. And he wants that for you more than you want it for yourself. And I believe that a huge part of the reason that we kind of default to this immature, shallow, secondhand spirituality is that we believe that fullness and joy in life is going to be found in something that God doesn't really want for us. And so we're trying to hold on to something, believing that if God... You know, if we gave everything that we are to God, that he would take away the joy of our lives. But John 15, 8, it tells us that God is glorified when the lives of his followers are filled with much fruit. Or to put it another way, the fruitfulness of Christianity, uh, let me say it like this, the fruitfulness of Christians is one of the ways that Jesus glorifies his Father. Think about that. Your life being fruitful and full and flourishing is one of the ways that Jesus brings glory to God the Father. Jesus is more committed to your fruitfulness than you are. So what does he mean by fruit? Well, uh, very simply here, fruit refers to good results coming from the life of a Christian. And we might be tempted to kind of I don't know, spiritualize that and, and, and think that what Jesus is referring to when he talks about fruit uh, is just things like Christian character, uh, self-sacrifice, love for our neighbor, obeying his commandments, of virtues that, I mean, sure, we'd like them in our lives, but they often feel more like self-denial than fruitfulness. 
but there's much more to it than that. Of course it includes that. But the purpose of the branch, we've seen this passage, the purpose of the branch is to bear much fruit. Verse 7 tells us that this fruit is the result of asking God for whatever you wish. Right? <laughs> now, asking God for whatever you wish, I'm not obviously endorsing the kind of television preacher, like name it and claim it, God wants you to be healthy, beautiful, and um, you know, have your own private airplane. But what it does mean is that fruit, the fruit Jesus is talking about, embraces all of the believer's life. Uh, he's talking about your marriage. He wants your marriage to be fruitful. Uh, he wants your friendships to be fruitful. He wants your work to be meaningful uh, and to be fruitful. He wants your life to flourish, and he is more committed to that than you are. Being a Christian is not just a matter of adopting a certain set of beliefs about God. It's about bearing fruit. This is what Jesus is saying. There are no true Christians who do not exhibit some measure of fruit. God loves you. He is for you. The problem with our culture is this. We uh, don't know how to pursue fruitfulness. We are really bad at knowing what will make us happy. And each one of us kind of believes this, this lie, okay? Each one of us believes this lie, I can make myself happy. If I was just a little bit more successful, if I lost 10 pounds, if I, uh, you know, have a great vacation uh, this summer, uh, if I could just get on top of all the things in my life, then fulfillment is what will naturally follow. But it's not true. It's not true. We are really bad at knowing what will make us happy. We're really bad at understanding where fruitfulness comes from. And so you have to see that Jesus wants you to bear fruit. Jesus wants you to experience his joy. And if we see that, then we can see where fruitfulness actually comes from. And so the second truth that I want you to see in this passage is this. Fruitfulness is more about being than it is about doing. Fruitfulness is more about being than it is about doing. We bear fruit, not so much through our doing, but through our abiding or remaining in Jesus. That word abide, uh, different translations translated different ways. If you're looking at the NIV, it says remain. It's the same word. To put it another way, um, our job is not to bear fruit. Our job is to abide in Jesus. And it's in the abiding in Jesus, in the remaining in Jesus, that fruit is the byproduct of our lives. Now, of course, we all know people who have had great success apart from Jesus. And we also know, like in general ways, that that success is often fleeting. But one of the greatest tragedies of our time is this, that we believe we kind of live in this mechanical universe where A plus B must result in C. And yet we've also had the experience of kind of doing the, generally, doing the right thing and working really hard at it and not seeing the results that we expected. But the secret of the Christian life is this. Happiness and success and fulfillment cannot be pursued directly. They only come as a byproduct to a life of abiding in Jesus. Let me say that again. Happiness, success, fulfillment cannot be pursued directly. They only come as the byproduct of abiding in Jesus. And so to get at this, Jesus uses this great metaphor 
of the relationship of the vine to the branches. And um, the vine or vineyard was this frequent Old Testament metaphor. It's throughout, uh, I think Trevor referenced it in the book of Isaiah. It's in the Psalms um, that the nation of Israel, the Old Testament people of God, are frequently referred to as a vine or a vineyard. In the time of Jesus, uh, the temple in Jerusalem, which had been... um, Kind of rebuilt after their exile and then beautified in uh, in the in the in the years kind of immediately preceding Jesus' uh, ministry. When they would Jews would go up to the temple over the massive entrance, there was a gold vine that was kind of stretched out over the over the entrance to the temple. And so again, Jesus makes this audacious claim when he says, "I am the vine." Every good Jew would have known that the vine was this picture of the people of God and that it's prominently featured on the, uh, on the temple where God met with his people. And yet Jesus says, yeah, that's me. I am the vine. What he's saying is, I am the source of your joy. I am the source of your life. I am the source of your fruitfulness. And your life and joy and fruitfulness depend on your continuing connection to me. The idea is pretty simple, isn't it? Once you begin to think about it, uh, A branch doesn't have any life in itself. A branch only produces fruit if it's connected to the source of life. It's only connected as the life flows from the vine into the branches. Fruitfulness will be the result or the byproduct of your life in as much as you remain connected to Jesus. And so here's really, I think, part of the thrust of this passage. Uh, Because God wants to see fruit... He is more committed to the fruitfulness of your life than you are. Because he's committed to fruit, he does two things. He cuts off those branches that do not remain faithful, that do not bear fruit. And the, and the branches that do bear fruit, he prunes. He removes branches that don't produce fruit, and he prunes all the others. I'm not much of a gardener. Uh, we don't have really any yard <laughs> Uh, at our house, but our previous house when I lived in, in Utah, uh, we had uh, this yard and I, I tried, you know, a little bit of uh, my hand at, at gardening and um, there was this rose bush, or there were three rose bushes that had been a previous owner of our house had planted in the front yard. And for the first several years that we lived there, I kind of ignored them and didn't really pay much attention to them and they just looked kind of shabby and tangled and, and uh, they produced kind of small blossoms and it was really... Nothing very impressive, but one day I was talking to a neighbor who had lived in our uh, neighborhood for a long time, and, uh, and this woman told me that a previous owner of our house had planted these three rose bushes in memory of a child who had died in the intersection in front of our house. And so hearing about that, I kind of felt this sense of obligation of like, I guess I should care for these roses. And so not knowing anything about roses, I did some research on the internet and basically, to care for roses, you just prune them like crazy. And, um, and I, I was pruning these roses so that, uh, really, when they were left, like each rose bush, there were three rose bushes, and they were like two twigs, like sticking up like this. And I pruned them in the fall. And then it snowed, and throughout much of the winter, I would see these kind of twigs sticking up through the, the snow, and I think, I, I, I killed those things. So they looked really bad. And then that spring came, and the rose bushes brought forth these large, beautiful blossoms. And I discovered this, left to itself, a rose bush 
It takes up its own light. It begins to grow in on itself, and it will produce a few small blossoms. But if you prune it, if you cut out the parts on the inside where it's grown in on itself, and you encourage the growth of the stems that are reaching outward and upward, that it can begin to focus all of its energy on growth, and it produces, uh, if you cut out all of the the shabby, tangled, uh, interwoven, weedy parts of the bush, it stops wasting its energy being unproductive, and it becomes, in a sense, its best and its truest self. It becomes the ideal rose bush when it is pruned. Listen, Jesus says every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Every branch. I don't know about you, I always think, when I hear somebody say like, I'm like, I can beat the odds on that. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. No exceptions. What that means is that God is going to come into your life and lovingly cut out the unfaithful, unproductive parts of your life. Until what remains is only the healthy parts Think about this, a healthy, a healthy plant, you know, an unhealthy plant produces unhealthy fruit. A healthy plant produces healthy fruit, so Jesus is going to cut out the unhealthy parts of you until you are healthy, and then you will bear fruit. But make, make no mistake, everybody in this whole scenario is getting cut one way or the other. And in the midst of it, it's hard to know if I'm being cut off or if I'm just being merely pruned. The pruning often hurts, and I think that we all know this, and yet I think we also, I, I mean, think about it like this. I have a, my brother-in-law is a, like a business consultant, and what he does is businesses pay him to come into their business and help. What he does is this. He says, uh, he helps a business identify what they do really well and then tries to convince them to stop doing everything else. <laughs> He's trying to encourage them to prune their efforts. Um... In my house, is your house like this? Our house is much more pleasant to be in when we like prune the stuff that we don't need. My children, their stuff multiplies on its own. I don't know how. And so when we, when we just let it grow out of control, our house is a nightmare. And when we spend the time to prune and weed their rooms, it's a beautiful thing. We have to, we have to experience pruning um, some of the best advice I ever heard given to writers is this. William Faulkner said, kill your darlings. Uh, what does that mean? It, what it, let me say it like this. What it means is this, that sometimes in my sermon, my favorite parts are the things that aren't helpful to you. But I really, really like those parts. And so if I'm going to be of service to you, I need to get rid of the parts that I love but don't help you. Because he loves you, God will prune you. Here's the reality. Our culture presents us with a false choice. Our culture says you have an option here. You can either live a self, uh, uh, you can either live a life of self-denial or self-fulfillment. And so your choice is this: you can either embrace who you are and feed your vices and celebrate, you know, your uniqueness, your brokenness, whatever, or you can repress it. But it's a false dichotomy. Jesus says that the way to get your life back is to give it up. Now, if Jesus just said the way to get your life back is to give it up, we might rightly question the wisdom of 
that, but the truth of that statement is seen in the life of Jesus himself because the incredible thing that struck me this week as I was studying this passage is that Jesus was not pruned. He was cut off. Isaiah 53, foreshadowing the cross, says he was cut off from the land of the living. Jesus was cut off. He wasn't pruned. Why was Jesus cut off? Well, there was nothing in him to prune, was there? But on the cross, Jesus hangs shrouded in darkness. And God turns his back on Jesus, and Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the, the, the answer is silence. He receives no reply on the cross. Jesus is cut off. But he is cut off in order to bring you life. Because what Jesus says here is that my life has to remain in you, and your life has to remain uh, you, your, you as a branch have to remain in me. And the only way for Jesus to get his life into you is to be cut off. See, there was nothing to prune in Jesus' life, but by his life and death on the cross and because of his, because of his resurrection and his ascension into heaven and through uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the life of Jesus now flows through your veins. That is how Jesus, the life of Jesus, gets into you. Jesus now lives in you. Jesus had no need to be pruned, and yet he was cut off so that his life may flow through you so that you will not be cut off. And so God now prunes you, and he prunes me in order that we might bear much fruit. Jesus says this in verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. So the question that that raises for us finally, Ben, in this passage is, what does it look like to abide? What does it mean to abide? How do we do that? Well, first, just to be clear, I said this already, but the word abide, it simply means remain. Um, it, remain it means to remain. To abide means to continue in daily personal relationship with Jesus. To remain, it takes time. Um, there's this uh, show on Netflix called Salt, Fat, Acid, and Heat. It's a show about food. Um, and my wife and I love this show. It's, it's beautiful, but uh, this chef, Samin Nasrat, has basically said, if you understand how salt and fat and acid and heat work in cooking, you can cook anything, and it will be amazing. And so there's one episode on each of these four elements, and so the episode of, about salt is obviously mostly about salt specifically, but there's one part where she goes to Japan and she talks about soy sauce as a, soy, as a source of salt. And um, after watching this, it turns out we probably, none of us have ever actually had real soy sauce because what we buy in those little green bottles is not actually soy sauce. And she interviews this you know, Japanese man who has for generations and generations, like his family has, made soy sauce and he uh, tours, gives her a tour of the facility where he talks about the ingredients that you put in, uh, in the soy sauce but, but really the secret is they've got these um, kind of vintage wooden vats and you put all the ingredients in these vats and I think it ferments, I'm not sure if soy sauce is fermented but it does something and, uh, and the result is soy sauce but there was this great quote where he said 
I don't make the soy sauce, I just create the environment in which soy sauce can be made. And that, I think, is a picture of what Jesus is talking about when he talks about abiding in him. We do not produce the fruit, but it is the result when we remain in the environment where fruit can be made. To bear fruit, we have to be connected to Jesus. We have to remain in the community, the church that knows and loves and celebrates him. We can't do it alone because, as this passage tells us, God cuts off every branch that's doing its own thing. We have to remain people of prayer and worship in our private lives. And we have to be ready to be pruned. We have to trust God that when it hurts, he loves us. (laughs) He's pruning us for our our good. (laughs) It's a crazy thing to say. So practically, what does that mean? Practically speaking, I want to leave you with a couple of, as best I can, practical thoughts. Um, Practically, we have to establish rhythms in our lives that enable us to remain in the context where fruit is produced. We have to establish rhythms in our lives uh, that ensure that we will remain connected to doing these things does not make you a Christian. Doesn't make you a Christian. But it's the secret to moving beyond a secondhand spirituality where we listen to things that other people have said about God and believe them to be true. In the um, in the Old Testament, there were uh, these these rhythms that God established for His people and the way that they viewed time. God had established uh, daily, weekly, and um, sort of three times a year rhythms. Um, you know, the Psalms say, early in the morning do I seek you, O Lord. There's the daily seeking of the Lord. There's a weekly Sabbath rest for the people of God. And, yet, and then in the, uh, in the Old Testament, there were these great festivals that three times a year, uh, the people of God would go up to Jerusalem to celebrate. And so, you know, bringing that kind of into the, the, the modern times and a lot of the New Testament, here's what I think we could say. In our time, we remain in Jesus through daily, weekly, and kind of annual rhythms. Um, daily, none of this is, is, uh, is really prescriptive, uh, but these, I think, are helpful rhythms, certainly helpful rhythms um, that I've found, uh, rhythms I've found to be helpful in my own life. Um, so daily, the daily rhythm of connecting with God, um, I think I said a few weeks ago, I've been a Christian for, gosh, almost 30 years, but only in the last, I don't know, several months have I begun to experience what it is like to live daily in the, in the presence of God. And, and part of that shift for me has been... Um, Depending on your, your background, if you grew up in the church, you may have experienced this, you may not have experienced this, this idea of like having my daily quiet time with God. But I've made this shift from this idea that in the morning I, I connect with God and then go about the rest of my day to what, what Christians have called praying the hours or the daily office. Um, and, you know, monks, monks pause like eight times a day to pray. Uh, to pray. Um, I, I'm trying to pause four times a day <laughs> to pray. And so... This is what I'm, what I'm trying to do, and I don't do this perfectly, and I, I don't think I've ever done this 
Like maybe one time I did this perfectly. Uh, well, not perfectly, but four times in one day. And so what I'm trying to do is, is first thing in the morning, well, actually, after I drop my kids off at school, I want to spend like 20 or 30 minutes reading the Bible in prayer and in silence before God. And I've been praying for, for you and for my family and for, for other things that God brings uh, to light. And then at noon, I, I set an alarm on my phone that goes off at noon. And if you're having lunch with me, my alarm goes off at noon. And I hit snooze like throughout the lunch. And then to remind myself to just read a song. And, and, you know, at lunchtime, it's a very quick thing. It's like five minutes of connecting with God. And then at dinner time, we're trying to um, it, it model this for our children. So we're, we're, we're learning the New City Catechism together. Uh, these truths about who God is and what he's done for us. And then uh, last uh, thing before bedtime, um, praying this, this uh, prayer that uh, has been called Compline, um, kind of comes out of the Anglican tradition, but it, it's, it's kind of this, this effective saying, um, I want the last words on my lips to be words I direct towards God every day. And what, it, what, is, what this has done in my life is kind of created this rhythm of not I'm filling myself up to go about the rest of my day, but I'm actually living my day in the presence of God and hearing my Father's voice uh, throughout the day. Uh, weekly, weekly uh, worship. Worship has been the weekly hallmark of Christians for 2,000 years. We have this tendency, I think, in our time to work like crazy and then occasionally to just like check out and take a total break from everything. Um, and then we come back, and you know, I hate this phrase, like I need a vacation from my vacation, right? But maybe we come back from vacation feeling more like we slept more, but we don't feel that much more rested. And what we need to understand is that biblically, all true rest begins with worship. All life-giving rest begins by acknowledging that God, our Father, provides for us. And slowing down to spend time with Him and acknowledging that our lives are fruitful when we remain connected to Him. And so we remain connected to Him. One of the ways that we acknowledge Him as our provider is by stopping work and so God's people have always been people who set aside a day every week for worship, for rest. Because you cannot remain productive without rest. You cannot abide in Jesus without worship. Let me say this humbly. I know that there's some self-interest in this. Hopefully we can get past that. But the Sundays when you just feel like, I just don't want to be at church today. I'm tired when I want to sleep in. Or the Sundays when, when we say, you know, I got too much work to go to church today. Those especially are the weeks that you need to be in worship. Not because, trust me, this sermon is not going to be that amazing, but because God uniquely meets us when we gather with his people. And then vacation. Um, we need to set aside time throughout the year for extended Sabbath. Uh, for time with our family, you know, maybe this means leaving home. Maybe, maybe it doesn't necessarily need to, to be that. But begin with worship for real rest. Um, we cannot simply just check out of life and do nothing and expect that that is going to be restorative beyond the, you know, the details of catching up on sleep for a little bit. We come back to work after a week of vacation, you know, and two or three weeks in, we're exhausted again. I've shared with uh, many of you a month or two ago, Ashley and I went on um, this uh, pastoral retreat um, where for four days we, we got away and we basically spent every morning uh, in prayer and in scripture and 
you know, you think, gosh, you, you kind of got this time away and you spend like eight to noon every day praying. Wow, that's like a big commitment. I know, I know. I, it blows my mind that like this happened, but I can also tell you that I've come back feeling more rested than I ever have in my life. I, I mean, honestly, the only reason I can tell you what I'm telling you right now is because of that weekend and what God did in me during that time. And I fear that for many of us, we've never actually experienced these daily, weekly, yearly rhythms of abiding in Jesus like with enough frequency to experience the absence of them. Does that make sense? Like it takes time to abide in Jesus so that like last week it was a total train wreck for me. Like those four times a day, like I didn't do any of it. But I actually noticed the absence of hearing God's voice and abiding in Jesus because I've established these rhythms. I don't really like talking about myself in that way, but I want to share that with you because I hope that for you too. Um, I can say more. I'd love to talk more if you have questions, thoughts. Come to community group on Thursday. We'll talk some more about it. Um, let me say this. Some of you are probably going, man, that sounds really great, but like you're a pastor. I don't have that much kind of time in my life. Um, let me tell you one of the strange ironies about life. In order to be productive, you have to regularly stop working. Like, that is just one of the strange truisms about life. In order to be productive, you have to regularly stop working. Let me say this as a caveat. Like, some of you are lazy, and you need to work, okay? You love to rest. You need to go to work. Others of you, most, I don't know, this is the culture that we live in. We're workaholics. You have to stop rest. You have to stop working and rest in order to actually be productive. Um, you may be incredibly productive, gritting it out for time, for weeks, for a few years, maybe even a decade, but it will come to an end. In order to be productive, you have to regularly rest, and true rest begins with worship, because we have to remain connected to Jesus, the vine and the source of our life. To remain in Christ implies taking time. It doesn't say check in with Jesus regularly. It says remain with him. It takes time. There's just no other way around it, but let me put it to you like this. Um, can you imagine going on a diet where you diet one day a week? Or can you imagine like a gym membership where you're like, I'm going to go to the gym uh, three times a month. Like, What effect would you expect that, that you know, diet or gym membership to have in your life? All, all it's going to do is leave you like frustrated and sore and hungry every once in a while. Abiding in Jesus takes time. There's no substitute. It's the only way to move beyond secondhand spirituality. So are you ready to stop living a secondhand spiritual life? Let me finish with this. Um, I don't really have a yard, but I have a patio, and in my patio I planted this tree, and it's called a citrus salad tree. And on my citrus salad tree, there are five or six different kinds of fruits growing on this one tree. Uh, there are limes, there are lemons, there are tangerines, there are mandarin oranges, and there's a couple of other things that I can't remember. And uh, this is how uh, this, this tree is described on the Home Depot website. All fruits retain their own individuality with staggering ripening times. Each bears its fruit in season. When one is wintering, the other may be blossoming. Blossoming. Through the miracle of modern technology, scientists have taken in a lab one 
tree and they have grafted other trees into it. It was first perfected in Australia but now available to you for about $100 at Home Depot. But long before science, scientists figured that out, Jesus said basically the same thing. You can experience life in me, Jesus is saying. You can be connected to the vine. And the Father will prune you so that you bear more fruit. And as you bear fruit, you will become your truest and fullest self. That's what Jesus wants for you. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you that you were willing to be cut off on our behalf. Thank you that you who had no need to be pruned gave yourself up for us. Jesus, you have um, done everything that you could do to convince us that you are good. You give us your own life. Oh God, would you help us to remain in Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.